Abortion. Whether you're pro-choice or anti-choice, you're likely to have some emotions jolt through you when you hear the word. However, with the appointment of conservative Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade-related decisions on the docket across the country, we want to make sure you know, and we all know, about the abortion and reproductive rights landscape, which is way broader when you consider what it takes to bring a child into the world. Affordable housing, health care, and living wages, just to name a few. And we also want to bring your attention to a new program for any lawyers out there who want to get involved. Promise, it'll be relevant if you know any women at all. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be a little more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. All right. So today, as some background, you know, our audience is largely white, largely not attorneys and a lot of moms, although we do, in all honesty, have so many demographics covered. So if what I just said causes you to be like, wait a second, I'm an attorney, I'm not white, and I'm not a parent, then great. But, you know, as a background, a lot of our listeners have little to no understanding of the legal landscape surrounding reproductive rights, besides perhaps what's going on in their own state, as well as Roe v. Wade, because that's something that everyone sort of hears about, or other Supreme Court decisions that have been very recent, like June Medical, that they may have heard of. So we're going to keep it non-lawyerly, which Sarah always has to remind me of this. And Sarah, I trust that you will just jump in and, you know... Be like, human talk, please. (laughs) So today we have a special guest. And can you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. My name is Melissa Torres Montoya, and I am the lawyer engagement manager at an organization, nonprofit organization called If When How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice. So while I'm a lawyer at a Lawyering for Reproductive Justice organization, I too talk about reproductive justice and reproductive lives and sexual lives all the time with my friends who are not lawyers. I will try to keep it not lawyerly. All right. Awesome. Um, So... Let's set the stage a little because, you know, we're recording this in mid-November 2020 and we're coming out of still in, who knows, you know, an election. It'll be in, but soon. It'll be over soon. (laughs) An election that was unlike any other election that we've seen, you know, and part of the discussion and part of the issues that were on the ballot this year were around reproductive rights. So, you know, I'd love if you could give our listeners sort of a little bit of a background about the current state of federal policy around reproductive rights and state policies. I know that the Roe Act in particular in Massachusetts has been discussed a lot, but you know, I think a lot of our listeners, as we just said, sort of deal in federal policy or aware of federal policy, but you know, there's so many things and so many issues that are raised. So you're right. There are so many things (laughs) and state and federal. I mean, we could have a whole conversation about each one and so much impacts abortion access and reproductive rights and reproductive health. And so, I mean, So much is happening and so much isn't happening, which also impacts access, right? So I think on the big picture, the federal law and policy generally dictate much of what states can actually do and how they can regulate abortion. And we know there's little federal support right now to for reproductive rights and justice. And reproductive rights are constantly under attack on a federal level in many ways, or even through federal inaction. And particularly, I think, you know, you talked about the election, but right before the election, a conservative judicial appointment of Amy Coney Barrett clearly is going to impact 
federal abortion rights, what that federal landscape looks like, which impacts what states can do. But it also currently, I think, you know, given Congress and given Republican controlled aspect of Congress, it's really difficult. They block advancements for reproductive health in any and every opportunity they get. And on a state level, practically since the day Roe was decided, there are states that have also found ways to subvert and twist federal law in order to increase abortion regulation and target people who have abortions or target individuals who are providing abortion care. So I think it's not just, you know, we hear about, okay, there are these bans and abortion is, you know, this state is outlawing abortion, but it's not just about the bans, right? It's chipping away. It's all these very, I really hesitate from saying creative, but I guess it's this persistent attack and all these riddling every state that is has anti-abortion legislatures with a bunch of anti-abortion laws and a, a lot of different avenues to limit access to abortion care. And so there are laws targeting, for example, bans on providing abortion through healthcare coverage. So abortion is an aspect of healthcare, and there are laws carving that out. And there are laws targeting abortion providers, so physicians who are providing abortions um, and other abortion, those in the medical field who are providing abortions. There are laws that are, or ways that they're, you know, making it so that anti-choice protesters and those who are anti-choice can harass and target people who are having abortions. So all this is also within the broader context of there's just not that abortion is just one piece of this. So I can definitely talk a little bit more later on about reproductive rights versus justice and how reproductive justice, you know, approaches. It's not just about abortion and it's not just about that right to have an abortion. It's about being able to actualize your decision and your reproductive health decisions and your sexual enacting ways that you can have a healthy autonomous sexual life. And so it's about all those structures that influence what those decisions are. So, you know, from birth injustices, you mentioned you have a lot of moms on as listeners. So I'm sure each mom that's listening right now has a different experience in their birth process and trying to make sure that those experiences inform what our policies actually are as well as, you know, there are other issues around welfare and there are these policies called welfare family caps, which basically means if you're on welfare and you have another child, there isn't additional funding to support that child. All of those types of policies impact what decisions we make about our reproductive life. And to include why our name is what it is, it influences our ability to decide if, when, and how to create and sustain and define our own families. Um, so I think that's a broader picture. Nasasha, you mentioned specifically that abortion was on the ballot. And so I think there are two ways that abortion is on the ballot. I think there's the actual, there were abortion measures on ballot initiatives that electorate, the voting public was deciding on. And then there's the way that we elect our public officials in, all the way from the president, which has implications around abortion, around reproductive justice, about reproductive rights, and about those societal structures that can help enable us to make our decisions. But there were two, I, if you'd like me to chat about that, the ballot initiative process is a longstanding tactic. I started voting in California in 2003 and in California in the first, in basically my college career, I voted on abortion three times. And in particular, they were back then, there was an initiative to limit access to abortion for young people to require notification or consent for parents. And, you know, even though I'm throwing it back 15 years, the state legislature in Florida last year just passed a law 
that now requires young people to gain both consent from their parent and notification. And if they don't have that option, then they have to rely on the legal system. They have to go to a judge and have the judge decide whether they're mature enough to make their decision around their reproductive lives. So that's actually not my topic, but I would definitely encourage your listeners to check out. That's something that we work on at If When How. And there's information at our website more about what the judicial bypass process is like. And if you do have a listener who's an attorney in their state, that's a way that they can definitely jump in. But this most recent election, the two amendments that were, or two ballot initiatives that were about abortion, one was specifically in Louisiana saying abortion is not a right. It is. I want to also be clear for your listeners. It is not outlawed in any state right now. Access is a different thing, but it is not outlawed. That's really, you know, these laws are being passed with the idea of overturning Roe. But in Colorado, it was more of a restriction. And I bring those two up because in Louisiana, around 60% of people voted to pass it. In Colorado, around, you know, 58%, again, around 60% voted to reject it. So it kind of reflects what I think we've all been talking about this election is that polarization between states, right? That like Colorado is like 60% no and Louisiana is 60% yes. But if we look back two years ago, we see that in West Virginia and in Alabama, both Southern states, both who passed not just, you know, laws around abortion, constitutional amendments. And there's a difference between how they passed it. Like Alabama, 60%. And like, I think over 60%, similar to Louisiana. And in West Virginia, it was 52%. So I think that shows that mobilization, it matters. Getting involved, it's effective. And so that's why at If When How, we're building up a group of lawyers who can get involved. And we might not be able to be in every single decision-making point, but we can bring our lived experiences. And I think it's important for listeners, regardless of whether you're a lawyer, to get involved on a local level. Because, you know, those are ballot initiatives, but the election also impacted what our state legislatures look like and how we can pass laws that have to do with pregnancy protection or affordable wages or housing, which is so important right now in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, it's always important, but we're all really aware of how important things like affordable housing impact our lives and definitely our reproductive lives. I think one of the things you pointed out First of all, I'm in Colorado. So I was like, I'm very familiar with that particular restriction that was rejected by the voters. But I think it's so easy when we're talking about things like law or we're talking about these policies to live in our heads and imagine this word abortion and live in the in the rhetoric. But when you told that story right now about the Florida situation that was reflected, you know, that just passed. I mean, I'm picturing a 16 year old girl who got pregnant and whose parents are absolutely against abortion, but she does not want to have this child because maybe she was attacked and raped or, or whatever. It's an unwanted pregnancy, but now she has to go to a judge to explain why she doesn't want to, like, imagine if this is your child having to go through this and then time is ticking. And then all of a sudden it becomes a quote, late term abortion because it passes this time while the justice system is slowly making, I mean, this is a human being's entire future. We're talking about, we're not talking about this stuff just in esoteric ways. 
Absolutely. I think that's a huge thing for me is that we often, you know, right now around election, we think of strategies, right? That's the ballot initiatives. There are long-term strategies. That was 15 years ago. And then all of a sudden you see it in the Florida state legislature and it impacts people's lives, right? And I would say those are the extreme cases, right? This is a situation, but a 16-year-old, regardless of what their relationship with their parents is like, right? Like a lot of them do talk to their parents, but we should all be able to make decisions about our reproductive lives. And you're right, like the word abortion comes up, but in reproductive justice, I'm thinking of just like, what is your experience being pregnant in the workplace, right? Like how are there different ways that we can make that experience smoother for everyone? And what are different ways, what's your experience going to a doctor for HPV screening, right? Like, have you had a nurse who stigmatizes the idea that you're like, hey, I want STI screening, give me the full panel, right? That nurse might say something about like, well, you know, what kind of relationship are you in? How can we make sure that there are policies and practices where we just destigmatize it's always interesting when we talk about reproductive rights and reproductive health, where we're talking about it in these very legal terms. And it's like, it's connected to sex, right? Like we all should be able to make decisions at each point. These are decisions we're making every single day. How can we make sure that there are policies that we start to do culture shift and we start to talk about it in a way where we feel comfortable, not just like whispering at tables with our best friends. So yeah, you're definitely right, Sarah. That's There's an actual experience that someone is going through because this law has now been passed. And I think it all, it's laws that are passed, but it's ways that we can get involved in our community. It's ways that we can work with the medical care system to make sure that someone walks through their life making those decisions with all the information they need so that they know. And in terms of like what you just said with Florida, a way that we're making sure like a lawyer can get involved by being that lawyer and making the process for that young person feel it's awful. I can't imagine going to a judge. 15, 16 year olds aren't necessarily openly talking about their sex lives to begin with. And now having to go before a judge, you know, potentially probably like we know the judicial system and lawyers are still 60 something percent men. There are 85% white. So you're not walking into a place where it's likely that a lot of us, especially younger, feel like it's a community that understands us. And so how do we make those decisions? How do we make sure to, as lawyers, we can go in there and we can help support and learn what it's like to talk to a young person to make sure they feel agency in that process. But I think that we can also all recognize that every one of us can support abortion funds. Every one of us can go talk to our own legislators because with that law, it means that there will be instances where a young person is going to another state, where there will be financial need to support the actual abortion, which costs usually at the very least $500. It's not covered by insurance if you're not talking to a parent, right? And then a lot of people who get abortions are already parents. So they'll have to concern themselves with like childcare. We have to have the information to know, like you said, if it's a later on in pregnancy or you may have a two-day procedure. And so you may have to stay the night over at a hotel in a different state. There are just so many different aspects that individuals will have to navigate that already have to navigate, right? Like even without Roe being overturned, we're lots of people are living in a post-Roe world and are having to navigate. And so knowing what the laws are in your state, knowing not even the laws, but like some clinics stop abortions at 16 weeks, even if it's not illegal. So knowing which abortions are open, where, like calling in, knowing how long it'll take you to get an appointment. If not, then you have to navigate all these different aspects to still access abortion in a different state, potentially. You just mentioned something that I had not thought about before, but it was that say you're in a court of law and you need to feel like you're part, I mean, it's uncomfortable discussing it. Let's be honest. People don't talk about abortion openly. People barely talk about their sex lives openly. Like it is not a discussed 
topic. And yet I find that like girlfriends might talk to girls about like their fellow girlfriends, like people find their community to have that conversation. And yet, you know, when you're talking about finding advocates and allies and this sort of stuff in this space, I'm conflicted because I think that it feels better. Abortion is something that women have to carry by virtue of the fact that women are the ones who get pregnant and carry the child. And yet it feels so important to have men involved in the conversation and understand that women didn't get pregnant themselves. Like this wasn't immaculate conception. It's a partnership and sexuality is something that is enjoyed between two people, whatever gender they are. And so how much of a male support system are we looking to have in this realm and in what capacity? Yeah, it's a tricky thing to navigate. It's something I haven't actually thought about that. I feel like when I first got involved in this work, I taught sex ed between undergrad and grad school and, you know, was talking, it's sex is not something we talk pretty openly about. And it was interesting talking to 13 year olds who are just learning about it, just having those conversations and then asking me questions as a 22 year old. And I was like, I don't know why you know that sex story. <laughs> I don't know what that is. And I, iPhones didn't exist. So I couldn't Google it back then. But I think that that was something I remember when I first came into having a lot of conversations. I think, you know, there's definitely, we're growing in our understanding of gender. So most women female identifying are the ones who have abortions by virtue of how that happens. But there's also a lot more of an understanding of gender non-binary. And I think that conversation goes a lot towards, I think, centering those who are impacted. And then what is it to be an ally? And what does it mean to be a co-conspirator around something? And I think that's a broader conversation we're having in society right now in general. Like how are these mass movements of these issues how can we support those who are dealing with the oppressive system? I don't know that I have a good answer, but I do think that it's important that it's one that we increase just our openness about talking about sexuality and, and like healthy, pleasurable. I think we're having more conversations around decision-making, around consent. These are all really important conversations and they're not enough. I mean, I think another way is like culture shifting, but also sex education, right? Sex education, which often falls in more of a, not reproductive rights, but the reproductive health kind of outlook. I think when you start talking to younger kids about it and having them feel more comfortable, when I taught sex ed, that was always something that was frustrating for me was we had like a week and I was in the state of California. So I could show them how to actually put on a condom that that was included. I could let them know that at the age of 12, I believe it was, they could make their sexual health decisions without their parents knowing, right? They could go in and get STI, HIV screening. They could also have an abortion, but it was a week in middle schools that I went in and taught sex ed. And then if the thing that fell off, like I had to talk about what the different STIs are, but the thing that often fell off was those conversations about healthy relationships, which that's hand in hand with feeling comfortable talking about sexuality, which is hand in hand with feeling, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily share their abortions. It's stigmatized. And we're having a really, I would also encourage your listeners to check out We Testify because that's an organization where people are sharing their abortion stories. And I think that's key to opening up the dialogue to destigmatizing abortion and can be a place where we start to talk about, yeah, someone didn't get pregnant by themselves, <laughs> but also like that it's their decision because they would be carrying on that pregnancy. I think it's tricky to navigate. <laughs> You know, it's great that you say that about the stories because they really are powerful. I think one thing that hit me before this recent, you know, the, in Colorado, this initiative of banning abortion after 22 weeks, 
came through the system because it was a woman in Texas sharing her story on social media and how she had desperately wanted this child. And they found at like 21 and something weeks that there was some massive genetic abnormality that would have killed this child upon birth and was going to cause a lot of discomfort. Like it was the child was not compatible with life. But because by the time they were able to schedule the procedure and get in there, she was forced to sign something that said that she is choosing to end her child's life. She is choosing a late-term abortion and the trauma. And then basically that it says, I have killed my child. When that child was not actually compatible with life and she did not want to carry it for another you know, 15 weeks in her body, knowing all the changes that happen and all the awful things that happen. And so that weight that that family even had to carry being stigmatized now on legal paper saying, this is what I chose to do when people don't understand the story behind it is really hard. And that really redefined late-term abortion for me in my understanding that it is what it's called according to the legal jargon, but it's an actually very different reason why someone had to come to the table and make that decision. And so understanding these stories are so important. I think late term might not even necessarily always be the le- maybe a legal term in the states that pass anti-abortion legislation. It's an abortion leader in, in your term, I guess, is what you could say also, because <laughs> you have abortions at all different points in during your pregnancy. But it is hard because it is the terms law is reflected by politics, right? It's by who we vote into office and who decide and their value system decide the types of terms that are included in our statutes. So it's weird because that is definitely the connection. It's the connection of like, here's all this jargony, here are words that don't really mean something, but can really cause trauma and how it stigmatizes that person. And so there is a connection between people's really lived experiences, who we vote into office, how they write these jargony laws, and then how it relates back to how that person experiences whatever process they might go through that's been established through the law. I love that you made that connection too, because I think we tend to look at it, you know, in piecemeal or one part of the puzzle when it's really, you know, the whole thing that is this cycle or interwoven fabric of how we interact with law, how law interacts with us, how policy interacts with law and us. You know, and so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the Reproductive Justice Lawyers Network because, you know, I was on the call yesterday and I was so just fired up by what I was hearing and, you know, sort of the breadth of between law students being involved and, you know, policy questions and plans for the future. And I think it's amazing that this came about, you know, during COVID because we're, you know, it's not like we're able to easily assemble. And also, I think this speaks to what you were saying about allies and co-conspirators in ways, because this is such an important part to navigate this interwoven fabric, right? Which a lot of people have a hard time navigating. And, you know, when you were talking about a 15 or 16 year old going in front of a judge, right, to talk about their abortion, I have a hard enough time working up the nerve sometimes to be in front of a judge. And I've been a litigator for 15 years, you know, and it depends on so many things. So I can't even imagine. So I think this is such an important network that's being created. And I would love for you to share, you know, how it got started and what your goals are really for this network. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of identified already a little bit of how that got started. If when how is a spectrum of lawyers. So included yesterday in that call and that conversation were law students who've really been the heart and the engine of if when how I actually got involved with if when how when I was a law student myself. And then I became a fellow after graduating law school and public health school. And so was able to jump directly into this work. 
in my first year of being a lawyer. And then, you know, that really supported, I gained so much through that fellowship, so many tactical skills. The Affordable Care Act had just been passed. So I started learning about really how we pass a law, but then there's a lot, I always say the fine print that happens through the administrative rulings and the comments that we as the public are able to actually provide and shape how the law gets implemented. So those are, you know, the RJ fellowship program has been established. I think we're on our 10 year anniversary and law students have been involved in this for two decades. And we have lawyers that have stayed involved. And this is a network to help support those lawyers, to keep them connected and to have a spectrum. So like you said, you're a litigator. This network is, there are a lot of people whose day jobs are, you know, working in real estate, working on tax law, but that we care passionately about this because this is, I think the heart of what we've also been talking about during this conversation is These are things we experience every day in our lives. Like we all have sexual lives. We all have reproductive lives and that's not unique to us, but the lived experience we have is unique and that it should definitely be informing the policies that end up getting passed at a state level. So the network is to make space for all of us who care about this, who are legal professionals, who are lawyering for reproductive justice and that because reproductive justice is so holistic, that means so many different ways. Like if it's someone who is involved in their communities to shape the laws and policies that impact reproductive justice, that's what this network and community is for. And the vision for it is essentially we're going to keep seeing attacks on reproductive justice and rights and attacks on or inaction on things that impact our ability to make those decisions. And so we want to make sure that there's a group of lawyers who are ready to go in different states. We have to be really intentional and supportive and thoughtful in how we continue to build that this network up. So, you know, we know that there are states like that are passing amendments by 60% of the electorate. And so having lawyers involved, um, definitely if your listeners are in the Midwest and the South, it's a hard place to do this work. And we're hoping to be able to create a community where there is a diversity of lived experience of lawyers from different backgrounds. And this is a place where we can, you know, you know, for example, that piece of legislature on the ballot was in California in 2005. Like what kind of organizing happened around it? How can we now model or take lessons learned? Obviously we know that California or Florida are different political, I don't want to say on the different political spectrum, but they're different political environments. And so how can we make sure that there's a space where we can connect lawyers and on the ground um, advocates? Uh, So actually I want to get to like the ways that we're actually doing that, but I want to also just put a pin in here for like, there are lots of people already doing this work. And so I think as lawyers, we have to recognize that we're there in a way to bolster and support the work that are on the ground already in these states and that are doing reproductive justice. So I, you know, I can think of like there's in Tennessee, Free Tennessee is doing work around ensuring prenatal care for incarcerated pregnant people. Georgia is doing so much work right now in general, has so much on their plate and there are organizations on the ground that are holding ICE accountable and demanding the shutdown of the Irwin Detention Center, where a whistleblower, a nurse, revealed that forced hysterectomies were taking place there. So lawyers have a role to play, and we can leverage their legal skills to increase capacity in these important efforts, right? So the way that we're doing that is we can see, like I said, the long-term vision is for us to be able to be like, okay, this proactive piece of legislation is being introduced. Now we can testify on it, or this piece of law has been passed. And, you know, with reproductive justice, we're not talking just about that right. We're talking about 
access and how to make sure that implementation and all the support systems are there so that someone doesn't just make the decision, they can actually exercise that decision. And so that's the long-term vision. But in the meantime, this network is providing learning opportunities. So, you know, tactical trainings, like learning about the administrative law process, but also the historical context of reproductive oppression. And we're also making space for mentorship and connection. We have an online portal for our lawyers to be able to connect directly with each other. And then finally, it's the volunteering. So getting ready to go and getting ready to jump in, whether it's judicial bypass or whether it's testifying or representing someone who's been criminalized for their pregnancy outcome. We want to make sure to provide the education and support so that someone who may have a corporate background for 15 years can enter into a nonprofit sector. I think a big thing for me also is mentorship is, you know, anywhere along the spectrum of your career, it's great to jump into this work. And there might be someone who has 20 years of litigation experience and isn't as familiar with reproductive justice and the reproductive justice lens and might be connected to a younger person who doesn't have as much legal experience, but they can learn. It's really a mutual kind of learning experience. Uh, so those are the main ways that we're developing this future of being able to be present and involved in all the different ways that policymakers are making decisions and the legal landscape that impacts our individual ability to make decisions about our reproductive lives. What about those of us who are not lawyers, who can't join the network, who can't, you know, I mean, obviously I can help spread the word and tell all my lawyer friends that this exists. Is there anything else that in the field of reproductive justice, you see the non-lawyers in the crowd participating in a meaningful way? Yes. So, I mean, first I would say our government and legal shaping process, right? The way we pass laws is open for everyone, regardless of whether you're a lawyer or not. Lived experiences, our lived experiences and the way that we experience the healthcare system, different aspects of society that impact our reproductive health decisions. I want to make sure that each person knows that their voice is valued and can influence and shape the laws, right? Like you can go into your local legislative representative and talk about what your experience was like being pregnant in the workplace and how there could be measures to improve your experience. But also, I think I was talking earlier about that just web of laws and how it challenging it is for individuals in states already to access abortion. So I think, you know, not just spreading the word, but we need to, one, make sure that we're all talking about this, like our sexual lives, we experience them on a daily basis. We should be talking about them with each other all the time. So spreading the word about information, becoming educated ourselves on these topics. And then also that there is going to be a huge financial need to make sure that people who need abortions can access abortions. So I would say, you know, donating to your local abortion fund or financially supporting the work that we're doing to build up this network of lawyers is definitely something that we would really appreciate and how we can get moving and forward. I want to say, first and foremost, every individual can get involved in the state legislative and community policies that are being passed. And then I would also say, though, there's just different levels of like involvement and that the finance, you know, just to be clear, like abortions cost $500 to $1,500 for an individual. And that's not all the costs. It's all the different practical support that someone needs. And then also if there isn't financial support, you can volunteer for your local abortion fund, right? Like you can, instead of someone staying the night at a hotel, you can offer your home if you're in a state that does have access. Because I think that's the other thing is like, it's getting involved in places where we see those restrictions, but how are there ways for those of us in more progressive states to also support sort of the future of what we see around abortion access and reproductive health and justice? I love all of that. You know, I feel like it's preparing for the doomsday scenario where basically abortion is going to be limited, right? And I've always had a difficulty 
first of all, I'm a huge supporter of women having the right to choose because and I don't, I think the misperception that a lot of people have is that it's a choice that some women go into lightly and are like, that's my method of birth control. And you're like, no, no, no. It's usually a devastating decision that any woman has to make. So developing that empathy and an understanding of it is really important, but like, it feels like that is something that is going to be challenged and taken away. What for those of us who are not following the legal landscape are the potential threats on the horizon? Because we've talked, obviously, I hear vaguely Roe v. Wade is on the table in the Supreme Court. I hear death by a thousand paper cuts. I hear what you're saying about some of these specific things that are not just related to abortion, but about you know, pregnancy care and all of these issues that people being faced in detention centers. But like specifically when it comes to abortion rights, what are the concerns specifically that we should be keeping our eyes out for? Yeah, I mean, I think you're sort of holding back the days before 2016 when we're like, okay, here's what the Supreme Court looks like right now. And here are the different scenarios of how, what the future of abortion access looks like. So specifically with abortion access, I think back then we were having this conversation around death by a thousand cuts or like, you know, chipping away at abortion access. And right now, so most recently, Misasha mentioned June Medical. So the most recent like Supreme Court case did actually uphold abortion access. But the Chief Justice Roberts basically said, no, no, this is not the legal theory at which you can chip away abortion. But here's the pathway. So unfortunately, I do think with the shifting of the court, that pathway and that future is coming closer. So what I would say, though, is you mentioned about, you know, like, access has already been diminished. And I would say that there are parts of this country that live very much in a post-Roe world. Legal, but so limited, right? Like two abortion clinics in that state, or like you might as well go to fly, get on a Southwest flight, not during a pandemic, I guess, which makes it, we don't even have to discuss how much more challenging it is. But I think that like, that was the reality for a lot of individuals that Roe was never enough. It had to do with like, we didn't just need to pass and have the Supreme Court uphold the right to abortion, we needed to actually take proactive steps to make sure that each person can make that decision out of that abortion, which yes, for many people is complicated. There are so many nuances. It is devastating, but it's also, sometimes it's not as difficult because there aren't all those other supports, right? Like it's the societal structures that are impacting if someone's like, hey, I don't, have an affordable wage. So like, it's hard enough for me to afford to pay for my own food, then all of those, and I don't have access to affordable healthcare. I want a child, but like, here's the way where society is just not supporting my ability to choose to be a parent and to sustain and to then parent my family in that way. So like, there's so many different ways that individuals, each person has to sit with the realities of their lives to make that decision. And it's not for any of us because we don't really know what all of those circumstances are. So getting at those root issues, addressing those systemic barriers, I think that's really important. And it's not to deviate from the topic of abortion. It's just to say that like Roe was never enough. And so the uphill battle is that we're looking at a future. We're not just doing what reproductive justice envisions and works towards, which is here's the right. Now let's go beyond that, right? Let's make it so that each person can actually actualize their decision. So the future looks like basically no longer having that right. It's not worth from that. We're going to be reworking towards getting that right again and still trying to make sure because it will be legal in other states, right? So, and still trying to make sure that we can get people the information and get people the access. And that's why I brought up the idea of funding abortion and I think then it becomes a state-by-state mobilization. And that one point I forgot to mention earlier around when we were talking about the ballot initiatives, two years ago, 
Louisiana and West Virginia also had these amendments. And there was a difference in how West Virginia only passed it by 52%. So I think I talked about that, but the idea is that that mobilization, seeing that, it means that we can, we need to do this work state by state. We need to do that culture shifting because that's the future is like, hopefully we can pass more progressive. It's not just red state, blue state, Mississippi rejected abortion ban in 2011. And I think ostensibly all of us would think Mississippi is a deep red state. So the future feels bleak in a way when we just limit our scope to thinking about Roe v. Wade, but it means that this is why we all have to be on the ground working because I think there is potential to keep working towards reproductive justice and access to abortion, but it is an uphill battle. <laughs> I have an honest like a uh, question about it because I got into it on social media, which I've learned not to do again, with somebody who wouldn't even hear the rest of my conversation as soon as I said, I support the right for a woman to choose an abortion. And she like, conversation ended, couldn't have that. Like I sensed a lot of aggression. How are you finding lawyers involved in the network or people who are more outspoken saying, I align myself very openly with reproductive justice? How threatening is that feeling to be out there saying, I believe in this? Oh gosh, that's an interesting conversation. My parents even just recently were like, so when you buy your house, how can we make sure that your name is, you know, not in a public record? Because of course, putting yourself out there for this work, it does put you up in a situation. I mean, unfortunately, this is a place where I feel really strongly that each person should be able to approach their own life and their own decision-making. But that's really like the crux of this issue, right? So the other side and those who are against it really are not interested in listening to each person's individual experience around abortion. And I will say like, that's something I'm interested in when we're talking about developing this network and providing the support needed for this network. It's having conversations around how do you start to like, yes, we're strongly aligning, but like, maybe you're not going to strongly align in the moment of sitting next to a stranger on a plane where you're like, there's no way to exit. There's, I don't, you know, want to have, I usually, everyone has different tactics. Some people are like, I'm going to get into it right now. Right. Or like on social media, you never know the way that sometimes things happen on the internet can be really incredibly anonymous and abrasive and whatnot. So there's all these, what I'd love to do is support and hear more from lawyers, what their different experiences are. I definitely working with others, hear different tactics around how people talk about it or where they feel comfortable. And I think it's important to support our network in learning where their comfort levels are when they're going to speak really out loud about it. And it's not to say that you don't want to talk out loud about it all the time and you're pretty like out there, it's that there's safety concerns, right? And I know for myself, I often start off a conversation with someone who's a stranger, like in an Uber or Lyft and talk about public health. And I would also say like for myself, that's uh, starting off with individuals is, you know, abortion's been around since people have been able to get pregnant. And it's about making sure that each person can have an abortion in the way that allows them the comfort that they seek in that process. And so I think that that's sometimes a pretty effective way to start a conversation with someone who may not come from the same place. And then you start to like tease out more of the conversation that we are talking about, more of the broader, like if you both agree on parenting, you know, laws that help support parenting. So I think there's a lot of different inroads that I'm hoping we can explore. It's one of the different sessions and panels I'm hoping to create for our lawyers so that we equip them with information, with different tactics to go out in the world and talk really openly and assertively about it and also maintain their personal mental health, well-being and safety. I love that. I definitely think you should do that panel because it is, you know, it's so challenging. And I think we right now, you know, in this moment, we feel very divided and we feel very 
polarized. And so, you know, finding those commonalities or finding, you know, that common ground from which we can build an understanding of perspectives is so important, but so difficult to do sometimes in the moment or when you feel triggered or when you're on the defensive. So yeah, I think what you just said is so valuable. I know when you do that, let us know. We can write the Cliff's Notes version and send it out to everyone because I think there's a lot of people who want to have these conversations, but there's a lot of fear, a lot of anger, and it's a very emotionally wrought topic. And so it's very easy for people to either get so angry that it shuts down or just shut down out of defensiveness. And so anything that you come up with to help people reach across and find that common ground first would be, I think, really powerful. Yeah. I think that's something that actually, now you just reminded me of something that was on my to-do list that didn't end up happening by the time of the launch, which was basically like a conversation guide and, and starter kit. So just like here, what are tips that those of us who have been working in this field for a long time, how do we encounter it? Because, you know, we work in repro and that's our work lives, but we're also individuals who are part of our community and live in our community. And I'm someone who loves to start chatting with strangers about it. I mean, slowly, but eventually it's like, this isn't something that needs to happen in this bubble. It's something that impacts all of society. So we should start. I'm that person at happy hour who brings it up in a new group of friends. (laughs) So yes, I will definitely share. And I think it's not just for lawyers. It's something that I'm trying to support and ensure to equip like our network, those who are going to go out and do this work in their communities. But I think it's something we can all learn from because I think a lot of people feel passionately about it, but don't necessarily like post something on their Facebook about it or don't engage with their own family members who might have different of opinion. So I would love to be able to develop that and come back and chat with you guys about it once that's ready. (laughs) That's awesome. Because I think you do make, you know, so many good points about how it's not just, you know, we isolated into this little issue, but it is so related to ability to put food on the table, ability to have healthcare access, ability, like all of these other issues are contributing to the need to hopefully maintain this freedom to make this choice. And so at the very least, surely we can agree on some of these other issues and bolster programming and funding to make it even less of a necessary choice. Absolutely. I think that's actually a key of reproductive justice is starting to think of it in this holistic approach. And I think that's where you have a lot of conversation starters. You can make inroads with people to say like, okay, we agree on this, this, and this. And like, we might have had different experiences about this, but starting to think about things from other people's perspective is a really good starting point for empathy. So for our listeners who might be attorneys and want to find out more about this amazing lawyers network, where should they look? They should go to the If When How website. So on our website, and then there's a drop down menu that's like how to get involved. And it w- it has a drop down that says join the RJ Lawyers Network. And that way they can join our network. They can also um, join the portal to connect with other lawyers and they can be connected into all of our different educational and trainings, as well as opportunities down the line to actually volunteer and get involved on the forefront and support those reproductive justice organizations that are doing some incredible work in some really challenging legal landscapes. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us. Absolutely. It was such a pleasure to meet you both. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others.
Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Woman Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 